Okay, so today we have Ben Saunders. Uh, for those of you who don't know, maybe Ben, you could just introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, well, I'm usually introduced as a polar explorer, which which sounds like a kind of, kind of old-fashioned job title, but uh, I've been leading polar expeditions professionally since uh, since 2001, so for a while now. Okay, nice. And then how did it how did it all begin? How did you begin the journey into to polar? Yeah, I. I blame it mostly on a guy that I worked for um, in, funny, in, in my gap year, which was a, a long time ago yeah. now, um, called John Ridgway, who, along with Che Blythe, um, they were the first to row across the Atlantic in 1966. And John came back and, and, and founded uh, what he called an adventure school in, in the northwest coast of Scotland. Um, and I worked there for, year, for a year as an instructor uh, when I was uh, kind of 18, 19. And I think that's where the screw came loose. I, I'd always loved the outdoors. I'd always loved adventure. I'd been on a few little mini trips of my own before before that point. But um, he was just an amazing um, role model, an amazing mentor, but a very inspiring person to, to be around for, for a year. And it was an extraordinary part of the world. We, we were sort of right up in the Scottish Highlands, middle of nowhere, literally just, just south of the sort of north, northwestern corner. Um, and I just came away from that year. I read a lot of books that year. I read, read lots of po particularly polar expedition books. So everything from the Edwardian stuff, you know, Scott Shackleton, Amundsen, to, to uh, contemporary trips, you know, Randolph Fiennes, Robert Swan, that sort of thing. So I sort of came away from that from that year um, in my late teens with this with this sort of burning ambition to uh, to somehow get involved with the polar expedition. I, I never ever imagined it, be, it would become a career. <laughs> But but doing doing a trip and expedition was definitely um, the, the the dream back then. Amazing. And then so you had that desire. How did you then get into it? Were you involved with Ten Hadde? Yeah. So my first big expedition was was 2001. So I was 23 years old. It was with with Pen Haddo. Um I approached him. He, he's a very experienced guide. Uh, he used to have a company called the Polar Travel Company. So I I, I got in touch with him. Um, sort of lo looking to, to, to see if I could get a place on one of the trips that he was organizing. Um, and originally, I was going to be part of a big team trying to get to the North Pole from Russia, and the, the, the rest of the team pulled out, I think, I think through problems with sponsorship, or I'm not quite sure what the story was, but it basically ended up being me and Penn for, for two months on the Arctic Ocean. So it was, it was an extraordinary apprenticeship, and it was in at the deep end. We we were trying to get to the North Pole, geographic North Pole from, from the north coast of Russia. Two months, thousand kilometers, um, you know, one of the harshest places on earth. You know, you're, you're traveling over the frozen surface of the sea. There are polar bears, it's yeah, minus forty five. So it was an extraordinarily tough trip and, and, and we we didn't get to the pole. We got about two thirds of the way there around the time. Um and I came back feeling completely beaten. I mean just, just in, in shock at how tough this this, this place was. And how demanding these sorts of expeditions were, but um, but something something about it made me want to go back, and, and obviously I've kept going back to the, yeah. <laughs> the polar regions ever since. And I think people often ask, what what is it that's so special? And I think to me, it's the the scale of these places and the the sort of severity and the extremity of the of the climate there. To me, they're, they're as close as you can get to, to sort of visiting a different planet without actually leaving the, leaving yeah. the atmosphere. So they're just they're just genuinely mind blowing places to, to visit and um, and I do worry that there's something addictive about it. I think once you've once you've experienced it, you want to go back and, and, and keep experiencing it. And then what what was the first couple of days on that expedition like? Obviously, you'd read all the books, you'd had all this 
I imagine with the excitement and the anticipation, was it was it as you expected? Yeah, it was quite stressful. The, the, the sort of build-up. We travelled out through Siberia, and then the, you know the the, the the sort of first day, you basically fly out for a few hours by helicopter to from a from a tiny little. We stayed overnight at this weather station in in the middle of nowhere, off the north coast of Russia. So you're getting sort of more and more remote, and then you have this final sort of three or four hour helicopter flight to the the north coast of a, an uninhabited island off off the north of Siberia, and. Um, it just, it, even that, that that flight was just was just extraordinary. I remember feeling this, this real mix of, of of incredible excitement, like dream come true, and also this, this terrible fear, like what on earth am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the, yeah, the first two days are pretty crazy. I think it's just this, this initial shock at at climbing out of a helicopter and, and suddenly being, um, you know, having to look after yourself in in, in, in that sort of environment. So you know, spending. The, First night in a tent, um, you're getting used to operating those things. So it was a bit of a shock. I, I'd never spent a night outside at minus 40 something before, um, and uh, I, I, yeah, I've got pretty good at it now. But it was it was it was quite complicated the first time around, and just lots of things. So you can't you can't touch metal with bare hands. You can't use. So you've got to be really careful when using a, a stove or, or sort of pots and pans or you know, whatever it is. Um, uh, you can't really have much skin exposed, so you've always got gloves on and a face mask and that kind of thing. Um, so and 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 everything gets um, iced up. You know, when you're sleeping in a tent, there's sort of you know, condensation, you get frost everywhere. You have to be very careful not to not to ruin you know things like sleeping bag and clothing by by getting them getting them wet and then frozen. So um, it was just a real shock, I guess, the first the first 48 hours or so. And um, we 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 had a, a Fairly close encounter with a polar bear on the, on the morning of day two. We managed to, to scare it away, just sort of firing shot into the air. But that, I guess that was a reminder as well of how you know the, the risks of this of this part of the world. Um, so it was a very steep learning curve. But there was also, you know, Penn was an amazing teacher and an amazing mentor, and he seemed really um, sort of a, a, at home out there. And he was very skilled when it came to navigating and, and, and just the sort of day to day existing out there. The, you know, so it was. He was a very reassuring person to, to be with, and I learnt a lot from from him um, yeah, very on, on that trip. So it was an extraordinary experience. But but yeah, just the first couple of days, just in shock, really, yeah. <laughs> and uh, how harsh it is. Yeah. And then um, and then after that, was was the plan always to go on and do the do the Scott expedition? I know you, you said before it was ten years of planning. So was that always in the front of your mind? You know, once you've got the taste for it. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, I, I think when I went on that first trip, um, I wasn't thinking that far beyond it. It was so, it took so much work and so much effort just to just to sort of get that first expedition off the ground that I wasn't really thinking much about what I'd do beyond it. And and, and I think at that stage, thought it would be a one-off. Like, yeah, like I said, I never imagined there would be going to be you know, eleven expeditions. Um, so uh, when I came back, I guess I, you know, it took a while to recover and <laughs> get over it, and then and then pretty quickly I started planning other other trips. Um, and I guess it was 2003. Um, I met up with a guy called Tony Hale, who's now become a bit of one of my best friends. And um, he, I'd always wanted to do something in Antarctica. And um, yes, yeah, so many of the books I'd read had been about Antarctica. And there's this incredible sort of British. Heritage of of of, of you know, genuinely pioneering expeditions, particularly Scott and Shackleton, 
um, down down south. So I always wanted to do something down there. And, and Tony kind of came to me with the bare bones of an idea. And we started working together then, so yeah, 2003. And... Um, I think we both thought it would take a couple of years, and little did I know that it would take more than a decade to get yeah. this, this trip off the ground. But um, we were pretty naive back then, and, and, and things like logistics we thought would be quite simple, and actually it took a, a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of figuring out. Um, but uh, we got them in the end. Sadly, without Tony, he's he's moved to America. He's doing. He's got a very sensible career running a business out there. Now, wow. But we're still very good friends, and um, yeah, it took a bit longer than we, than we thought. Yeah, and then how has the technology changed? Because I know, obviously, compared to now, 2001, mobile yeah. phones have completely, you know, revolutionised. Everything's changed. In the world of polar exploration, has there been much of a much of a change in, the, in that decade? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think, weirdly, the technology for polar expeditions hasn't changed that much, but the technology for the rest of us has changed enormously. So, there's, nowadays, there's almost an expectation that you'll be sending back. This, this sort of rich content every single day and, and it's actually quite challenging from those sorts of environments. Um, there's only one satellite phone network uh, that works over both parts called Iridium mm-hmm. and that hasn't really changed in the last decade or so. In, in fact, it's, it's almost got worse. Um, I think as more and more people use it, 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 the call quality gets lower and lower and I think some of the satellites are getting a bit clunky now. They're, I think they're upgrading it in the next few years but at the moment it, it, it's, you know, it's all we've got if, you do, if you're doing a polar expedition. Yeah. Um, so I was, in a way, we were doing some quite pioneering stuff back in 2003. You know, I, I, I've got a slightly geeky, kind of alter ego, you know, sort of part, part geek, part explorer. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, the internet was, was, was instrumental in, for me, being able to do these trips in the first place. You know, and, and back in 2000, when I first got in touch with Penn, um, you know, getting an email was a real novelty. I, I'd get like three or four emails a week, and it was really exciting when you got an email. And then now I just, you know, it doesn't work. I'm just snowed under. But, but back then it was it was amazing to be able to sort of, um, you know, look someone up on, on the internet. And um, I, don't, I don't even know if Google was around. I remember using like Yahoo and things to try and, you know, I found Penn had a had a website for his business. Um, we had a website from that first that first expedition. I, I bought my first domain name I think in 1999. So I've been online for a long time. And I think very quickly I realised that the internet was a, was a great way to sort of share these stories just through blogs and putting photographs up and that kind of thing. Um, so back then, you know, 2003 was the first time I had a blog from, from an expedition live. Um, and it was seen as really pioneering. Like that, that was before Facebook or Twitter or you know, social media, Instagram, none of that was around. So, so then it was seen as really cutting edge. And, and nowadays... I think you'd be seen as weird if you didn't have a blog. Like it would be seen as being really eccentric or a bit secretive or a bit a bit odd if you, if you weren't, you know, sharing the story online. So, so I think people's expectations have changed, but the actual technology you can use in the polar regions has, hasn't changed all that much. Um, and it's a very harsh environment when it comes to to looking after electronics, particularly. Um, there's a lot to go wrong when it's when it's minus forty. Yeah, I saw on. Um in one of the videos that you were testing, were you testing the laptops, the ultrabooks in a, in a freezer to see? Yes, yeah. So Intel, one of the partners of the, my, my Scott expedition, and um, we wanted to try and do as much as we could with technology, but of course their engineers were, were worried that about the, yeah, where we were taking these things to. So they spent a long time, about about three months, really testing, testing this stuff in, in Swindon, of all places. So we had a cold chamber where we take everything down to like minus 40 overnight, and then you know, defrost it the next day, run some tests, freeze it again that night. So we did that on a sort of cycle for a long time. And 
it all worked remarkably right. So I don't think there was anything that, that broke. Um, so that was reassuring. And yeah, and, and the, the, the tech, you know, the technology we took to Antarctica all worked perfectly. Um, you kept the occasional thing goes wrong. We had a, I think the only thing we had to repair was a cable from a, from a solar panel, um, and we had to just sort of, you know, I, I think duct tape and, and a leather and you know patch it together. Um, but generally, it worked very, very well. And then physically, how how do you go about training for it? I mean, obviously, the ten years of planning, I assume it wasn't your fitness can't improve that much over the or it can improve a lot over the ten years, but. Obviously, is it sort of in the last two years or six months? How, when did you really start ramping the, uh, the training? Yeah, I guess in some ways the, the, the training and the preparation was, was a sort of cumulative process. So there were, there were a number of, you know, there were 10 expeditions leading up to Antarctica and, and, and each one was a sort of stepping stone in a way. So each one I would train for and, and, um, and we'd always be testing something new, trying out some new bit of kit or, or you know, tweaking the nutrition. So there, there were all these kind of stepping stones leading up to it. And then I guess there was about 18 months of, of, of specific training before Antarctica. So, um, and you know, I was living in Battersea at the time, so there aren't, there aren't any glaciers nearby. So you, you, you have to sort of improvise what you can. So I was doing when I was in London, a lot of running, a lot of cycling. Um, I tra- you know, d- doing quite a lot of weight training in the gym, sort of heavy, heavy strength training. Uh, and then I try and escape whenever I could at the weekends. Um, I you know, try and get to Wales or, or down to Dartmoor or something. Uh, my brother lives in the Alps, so I'm quite lucky. I, I got up there a few times, um, and Tarka as well is based in the Alps, so um, so it could occasionally get to the mountains. But we used to joke that it was, it was a bit like um, I forget the Rocky film with Dolph Lundgren, where Rocky's like training outside and, and Dolph Lundgren's in, in the gym in, in a city somewhere, and, and we were like that. So Tarka lives in the mountains, and I was living in London. Yeah. <laughs> we're both both training for the same trip, and I, there I am, yeah, lifting weights, and, and Tarka's out on a on a mountain somewhere. Yeah. Um, so it's about 18 months training, and, and, and trying to trying to juggle endurance and strength, because in some ways what we we're doing was a was a sort of ultra ultra marathon. We you know we covered 70, 69, 70 marathons back back, um, but it was also like a strongman event. We were dragging this huge amount of weight at the start, two two hundred kilos each. So fitness wise, you've got to be sort of jack of all trades, um, and we had to put on weight as well. So we had to I, I put on more than 10 kilos before we left. So you have to start sort of fattened up. Wow. 200 kilos is it's just such a ridiculously large amount of weight. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's um it's kind of two two fat blokes in a bathtub really. Two, yeah. two two rugby players in a bathtub. So it just it was it was ridiculous. I mean, I don't think anyone has ever pulled more weight than that. We we're, we're, were probably about the same as um, Sir Ronald Fines and Mike Stroud when they crossed that hurdle. I think they're pulling similar similar loads. Yeah. Um, so you can just about move it, but it, it's yeah, my notion of work. Yeah, and what what did sort of the the average day look like on on the Scott expedition? And m- m- more interesting, really, just just like what a morning routine looks like. Yeah, we we'd wake up. Um, we both had um, uh, both had an alarm, so two alarms would go off. So they're just like cheap digital watches that are pinned inside the sleeping bag. So alarm goes off. Um, we get up. I'm trying to remember what we really, I can't remember what time we 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 get really early. But of course, it's 24 hour daylight, so it's almost irrelevant, really. But I remember getting up at like five, I think most, because we, we, we ended up doing quite long days to try to make most of the, the time window that we had and not sleeping enough. For, for most of the expedition, we were averaging about five hours of sleep. So so we were kind of getting more and more knackered as the, as the trip went on. But uh, yeah, the, the alarm would go off. Um, 
I know I quite often have this like sinking feeling. You wake up and you think, oh no, I hear, I'm back in the tent again. You have some wonderful dream about being home or you know, <laughs> kind of lying on a beach or whatever, and you wake up and remember that you're in a tent in Antarctica and you've got to do 11 hours of really hard work yeah. that day, and then you do the same the day after. So, um, and, and then we kind of just do it on autopilot. So we take it in turns to uh, to cook, which basically just meant melting snow because the, the meals are all in a bag, they're just freeze dried. So the breakfast is like sort of muesli mixture in a, in a bag. Yes. Uh, so one of us, whoever was cooking that morning, would light the stove and would, would, would start melting snow to get water, um, gradually make breakfast, make hot drinks for the day. Um, we'd, 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 we'd get up, uh, take them down, start skiing, and Generally, I think we averaged about 11 hours a day, 10 and a half, 11, 11, 11 hours a day. And um, we'd do it in sort of hour and a half blocks. So we'd, we'd, we'd travel for 90 minutes. In fact, I'd do the first 45, we'd swap over, Tuck would do 45, and then we'd stop to eat and drink every hour and a half. So we'd do, uh, so we had, had like six breaks throughout the day um, where we'd literally sit on the sledges, pull out our flasks and have some hot drink and some food and then, and then carry on. So that was the routine, really, um, and, and always the same. So we'd always we'd always take it in turns, 45 minutes each to, to navigate. Um, uh, and the days, I mean, the days got longer as we went on. So to start with, the first week or so, relatively short days, because you've got these just crazy heavy sledges, so you can't just you, know, you need to recover a bit more. Um, and then, yeah, find a place to spot to, to, to camp, a spot to camp, um, stick the tent up. Uh, dig up some snow that you melt for drinking water, get in the sleeping bags, light the stove in the, in the porch of the tent, start melting snow. Um, whoever's cooking, we, we alternate every other day. Um, have some snacks, have a hot drink, make some dinner, um, write the blog posts, you know, resize photographs. So there's, there's lots of techie stuff in the evening. So you're making, we'd, we'd phone, uh, we had a, a guy, Andy Ward, who was our, our sort of expedition manager. So he was he flew down to Antarctica at the start, but then went back to London. So we'd, we'd phone him on satellite phone. We'd, we'd give him a sort of progress report for the day. He'd pass on any messages to, to us. Uh, and then we'd, you know, we'd update the website, um, eat, fix anything that needed repairing. Uh, stuff, equipment and clothing gets trashed the whole time. So there, there's, there's a lot of sewing and gluing and you know, bodging of stuff to keep it keep it going. And then... Um, yeah, and then and then go to sleep, and of course it's 25 daylight, so trying to get to sleep when it's blazing sunshine is is, is a bit weird. Yeah, um, you have Literally, yes, yeah, yeah, and uh, and I used to read for it. I had a Kindle, so I used to just read for 10 minutes before I went to sleep. It was quite nice having something to 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 sort of think about. Yeah, um, a bit of escapism, yeah. and then yeah, sleep for a few hours, get up, and do it again. Amazing. What what books were were on the Kindle? So say again. What books were on the Kindle? Oh, I had loads. I'd asked a few friends to, to recommend books. And I actually I actually read more on that expedition than I had in like a year or two years before <laughs> I read loads. And everything from like old classics, like like um someone said, Oh, if you haven't read Great Expectation, yeah, Charles Dickens, which I did read at school, I think for A level, but I hadn't read it since. They said you've got to reread it and I did and it's it brilliant. Um I had some more modern stuff, you know, some Martin Amos novels. I had um uh, had Captain Scott's diaries. We had Shackleton's diaries from his Nimrod expedition. Um, we had um, what did I have? Uh, the, one of my favourite books was um, uh, a great friend of mine called Al Humphreys recommended it, and it was uh, John Steinbeck, who's an American, mm-hmm. amazing American author. And it's 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 a travel book. So it's 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 um, and it's called Travels with Charlie in Search of America. And Charlie is his dog. Um, he's a sort of aging poodle. 
and he basically builds a, a sort of a, a, a what we would now call a kind of RV or, or a you know, camper van, but he has one built. Um, I'm not sure when this was set, maybe in the 60s. Um, and uh, he, he realizes that he's, you know, he lived in Paris and he's traveled all over the world, but he didn't really feel like he knew that much about America, his, his home country. So he went on this giant road trip around the U.S. and, and, and wrote about it. And it's just a brilliant bit of travel writing. So that was, I really enjoyed that because it was total escapism. He'd be, he'd be driving around the deep south in this incredible heat and there I was lying in a tent with a pair of gloves on. <laughs> so that was, that was a favorite, I think. Amazing. And then how long was the... Um expedition in total? Uh, we were on the ice for 108 days. Um, the, the first three days at the start, in, fa in fact, were skiing to the start point. We had to sort of go backwards for three days before we set off. So it was 105 days in total, you know, the expedition itself. Uh, lo long enough, three and a half months, I guess. And how, how did it feel to, to finally finish? It was weird. I, I'd always imagined that that last day would be the most emotional day of my life. I, I always thought that Chuck and I would be skiing along, kind of high-fiving each other, you know, hugs and tears and all that sort of stuff, fly, flying Union Jacks. And none of that really happened. We were just, we were so knackered. And um, the weather had been really bad in the last sort of 48 hours. So we were actually really stressing out about that because we were basically out of food. We had some quite tight time windows in terms of planes turning up and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it was really stressful the last few days, really bad weather, um, and um, and yeah, we just we just sort of crossed this finish line, which is a, a kind of crack in the ice, a tidal crack between the ice, Ross Ice Shelf and, and Ross Island. Um, just knackered, we were like two grumpy old men, just fed up with Antarctica, fed up with the weather, fed up with pulling pulling sledges, just. Yeah, starving and homesick and tired. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was a kind of anticlimax, really, and it took a while for it to sink in, and 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 it took um, most of last year really to to recover. You know, we we got back from um, Antarctica in late February, and it wasn't really until like Christmas that I finally felt back to normal again. It was, it was um, a tough trip. For sure. Yeah. And then what was your maybe your favourite bit of kit? Obviously, everything you took was essential. So what was the What's that number one piece? Favorite bit of bit of kit, you say? Yeah. Uh, oh, it's so hard to pick one. Um, the oh, or maybe luxury. If you, if yeah. You had a... Well, we I, I the sleeping bags were, were really good, and they were totally box standard. They were um, Mavs equipment, and I've done this work for 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 years. Um, it's there, they, and they've made a sleeping bag called the Everest. Since the 1980s, and they've kind of tweaked the design here and there, but it's a real classic bit of design. So, so we both had these Everest sleeping bags, and they were just brilliant. And they're, you know, they're, they're big downfield sleeping bags. So that was that kind of felt like our, our, our one one bit of luxury. You know, getting into the sleeping bag every night was always really really exciting. Um, and we generally slept quite well. It was only very early on, like in the early spring, when it was seriously cold at night, you know, in the low minus 40s, that that we'd feel a little bit cold. But but generally we slept well. Um, not not enough, but we slept well for the whole trip. So the sleeping bags I love. The, the tent was great. We we use um, Hilleberg tents, they're a Swedish company. That was absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, there were lots of cool. Uh, the skis were really good. We had these uh, crazy Italian ski. I, I've used Norwegian skis for years and years and years. And then Tarka said we should try this Italian brand called Ski Trap. It's just a tiny company um, that make quite specialist, normally racing skis. But um, uh, so yeah, the skis were fantastic. 
Um, so we had we'd spent a long time, you know, years really, and, and quite a few trips, perfecting the, the gear, and it all worked really well. Yeah. Um, I didn't really have. I mean, the Kindle was probably my only only one luxury. Um, maybe well, when we had music, we both had little iPod shuffles, so that was good. Um, but weirdly, we listened to it less and less. So the last few weeks, hardly listened to music at all. Mm. Any any standout tracks that you were hitting repeat on? Yeah, we were. It's funny, Tarka and I totally different. Tarka would listen to audiobooks. He loved, he did like the whole Game of Thrones and that kind of thing. I, I I couldn't concentrate. I I had to have like electronic kind of dance music, like you know drum and bass or deep house or something, kind of re- repetitive something, just to sort of keep keep moving in this like robotic kind of trance. So so um, yeah, so I had dance music, electronic stuff, and 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 bit of you know, rap and that kind of thing. And Tarka had audiobooks mostly. Yeah. Okay. Um. Coming back maybe now towards a more broader look on expeditions and adventure, why do you think anyone, maybe specifically young people, should get out and go on an expedition? Well, it's a good question. I guess for me, um, I was lucky that I grew up in the West Country, in Devon and Somerset, and was always able to be outdoors a lot as a kid. And... um, and I was never really that inspired by things that happened in a classroom. You know, for me, the exciting stuff happened outdoors, and 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 I was happier. You know, the the sort of wilder the setting, the happier I seemed to be. Um, I'm not saying that we're all wired the same way, um, but 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 for me, um, adventure was was a, a massive. Obviously, it's become become a career really, but. But it was a huge part in, in sort of making me who I am and a, and a huge part of my education as a person. And, and I think, for me, one of the real tragedies is, is, is that young people can spend so long in, in full-time education. Um, you can spend 15-plus years in, in full-time education and yet not actually learn anything about leadership or about teamwork or about communication you know, you might do some of that stuff through through team sports and that sort of thing, but for me, um, expeditions, adventures are the best ways of, of, of picking up those really crucial skills. Um, and to learn about these important things like 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 risk um, and like leadership and and uh, and in my experience, certainly when when you go on these sorts of journeys, and they don't have to be that extreme. You know, my girlfriend and I are going on a bike packing trip, we're going mountain biking across the Pyrenees this summer for the coast to coast. And, and so you don't you don't have to go to Antarctica or Greenland or the Arctic Ocean to, to, to go on a, an adventure, you know, to go on an expedition. Um, it's just getting somewhere, getting out of your comfort zone, you're doing something new, visiting someone new. And in my experience, when, when you're with other people, um, you know, and, and facing those sorts of challenges together, the, 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 the layers of sort of pretense tend to get stripped away pretty quickly and you, and you kind of see people as they are particularly when you're up against challenges together um, and and I like to think that the challenge brings out the best in people you know that when it comes to these sort of character characteristics and, and, and values and traits so to me um, their you know expeditions are, are just fantastic opportunities to to, to, to to grow as, as people um, to learn about ourselves um, to become better better human beings that's an excellent answer. Thank you. <laughs> um, and then we've got expeditions running to the Himalayas and to the Peruvian Amazon this year. Mm. What words of advice would you offer to those going on their on their first expedition? What, what advice would I offer? Yeah. Oof. Um, 
Wow. Uh, good question. Um, I would. One of the things that I, if if I could sort of rewind the clock and 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 pick up a skill earlier on, it would have been photography. I'm 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 a very amateur photographer. I've never really learned much about photography. And, and for me now, looking back at photographs and and, and bits of video, um, the the best way of sort of bringing back memories from this trip. So so. So I would, I guess, a bit of advice would be to do what I didn't do, which is just learn a little bit about photography and and and, and maybe you know spend some time with someone who's a good photographer, pick up some 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 hints and tips. Um, I don't think you need to have expensive gear at all. I've seen people take some incredible photographs with phones or with 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 you know very basic cameras, disposable cameras, that kind of thing. So so I don't think it's about spending loads of money on flash gear, but but more about just learning a little bit about about photography and, and how to take a good photograph. Because because I wish I had. Um, and I'm lucky in that I've often travelled with some amazing photographers. Um, Martin Hartley's regular friend of mine is just an extraordinary expedition photographer. So I've got some amazing images from trips, but 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 um, very few of them are, are my own. Um, and when I think back to, I guess my my first real expedition was was to the Himalayas, also in 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 a in a, in a gap year. Um, and after I left school, I you know worked six months, saved some money, and then and then went to Nepal and. And I wish I had more photographs from that first trip. So, so I think that would be a that would be a, a, a bit of advice, um, because that's one. I wouldn't say it's a regret, but if I could go back and do something differently, it would be that. Um, what else? Um, yeah, I think also so often people get so hooked on on wanting to do sort of more and more extreme things, and 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 oh, right, I want to go back to Himalayas, go and go and climb an eight thousand meter peak, go and want to go to the, one of the poles, and, and you don't. And it sounds odd, you know, the, the polar explorer saying yeah. it, but genuinely, some of the some of the, the trips that I've enjoyed the most have been the simplest, and 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 often haven't been that far away from home. And um, you certainly don't need to have, you know, thousands of pounds of sponsorship and and logos all over you, and, and be flying off to somewhere extreme to to have a, a valuable, enjoyable adventure. Um, it could be, you know, it could be in the same county. Um, so yeah, don't get too hung up on the idea that that that. Extreme is always better. Um, I think just go away, enjoy it, um, go with an open mind, um, and uh, yeah, ha- have fun. <laughs> Good stuff. And just to just to finish up, uh, I see you've launched a new publishing company or magazine. What? what, what yeah, that was now? that was a fun a fun little project. So yeah, I've just just launched or just helped launch uh, a magazine called Avaunt, which is uh, it's a biannual adventure magazine so it comes out every six months the next one's out in, in october um i did an interview about three years ago with a with a really nice magazine called port a, a sort of men's magazine called port and um it's a beautifully done um publication and and i've just made this throwaway comment to port's editor a guy called dan crow who's now a very good friend of mine one of my sort of business partners in the board um i just said it's a shame there isn't a really nice adventure magazine that's like this you know um, and he said, "Oh yeah, we should we should do that." Uh, and and of course, here it is, three three years later. Um, so it's been a, a sort of side project for a while, and, and it's become about much more than just expeditions. It's, it's sort of adventures in art and music and science and medicine and literature and philosophy and all sorts of things. So it's adventure is the theme, um, and it's just a, it's become a really fun really fun project. Um, and it, I've enjoyed. You know, I spent so many years doing these expeditions professionally where I've been sort of talking about myself and talking about the thing that I am doing. 
and it's so nice now to be able to turn the spotlight on other people and, and to interview people that I think are doing inspiring trips, um, you know, to tell other people's stories. So, yeah, really enjoying that. Um, so that's how I adventure in publishing at the moment. Yeah, and maybe just go back to your story. Have you got a book coming out from your adventures? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been procrastinating quite, yeah. quite a lot in the last year or so, but yes, I, I'm working on a book at the moment. So I don't think it'll be out until next year, um, 2016, but um, yeah, I'm slowly working away, literally in my shed. I have a, an office in the shed here. Um, so uh, slowly working on the book, but it'll be out next year. It'll be mostly about Antarctica, but also about some of the trips leading up to it. Okay, good. And where can we find you online if we want to follow? follow yeah, I am. Uh, I, I finally got my own website back up and running, but I don't don't blog very much yeah. at the moment. So bensilvers.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, all as Polar Ben, all one word. Cool, brilliant. And yeah, that's, that's probably all for now. I obviously, want to be uh, mindful of your time. So yeah, thank you for for speaking to me. Perfect. Real, real pleasure.